Hey guys, this is Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome to No Limits, a Mitrap podcast bonus episode. This is our first bonus episode. Pretty excited about it. And today we are bringing an interview to you with a good friend and friend of the podcast who has extensive experience working on Capitol Hill, dealing with matters of budget and even working for the majority whip for a time. So he's going to bring some insight into what it's like in Washington leading up to a major budget vote or any legislation that's on the table. And so we'll turn it over to our interview with Andrew. Chris and I are here today with a special guest, Andrew Cavazos. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Would you mind telling us a little bit about who you are, your background working in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, sure. So I started in D.C. Uh, in 2013. I uh, started working for a congressman uh, from Louisiana. I started out kind of like everybody else as an intern, making coffee, getting papers. Uh, and then you know, over time, more and more responsibility came. And uh, this particular member of Congress won uh, an internal election for party leadership. So he was elected uh, majority whip uh, while I was in uh, working for him. So I got an opportunity to move over to the Capitol and take a close look at the infrastructure in place and the procedures in place to pass legislation uh, in the United States the United States House of Representatives. So I did that for just about uh, four and a half years, and then I moved over to uh, the Federal Reserve, where I advised uh, Jay Powell and the rest of the board uh, on their relationships on Capitol Hill. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you for coming on. We thought you would be a perfect person to help us uh, as we discuss the first book in Vince Flynn's career called Term Limits. And a lot of it takes place in Washington and around the Hill. And so we have a few questions for you about what it's like to be on the inside and be working for such a prominent uh, congressperson. We know you may not have read the book, but at least you would be able to give us and the listeners some insight into what it's like. And if some of the things that take place are in any way realistic or not, or if they're just outside the realm of possibility. Well, it's an interesting world. So uh, so let's let's dive into it. You said you haven't read this. Have you read any like sort of political thrillers? Do you have a uh, favorite political thriller author? I did um, Too Big to Fail. That was good. I mean, all the the Treasury and Fed stuff and trying to bail out the banks and working with the White House. Mm. You know, that was cool. I enjoyed that one. I mean, that's not a unique choice or anything special, but it's a good book. I forgot you had you did a lot of work around the Fed. You were there for a little while, weren't you? Or just about two years. Term Limits is really based almost solely in the greater D.C. area in the lead up to a major budget vote with the current administration in the story. And so if you could just tell us a little bit about what Washington is like leading up to and ramping up to such an important vote and what communication is between the Hill and the White House and what say does the president have on a budget versus how much is Congress shaping the narrative? Yeah, so when I first got to Washington, D.C., the the insight was pretty limited for, for a number of reasons. The Republicans had just taken the majority in 2010, so a couple years after that. So they were only had one of the three keys that need to pass a piece of legislation. You need the House, the Senate, and the White House. So we were negotiating with Harry Reid and President Obama at the time to get our priorities into pieces of legislation. It turns out when you only need a couple of Republican votes to get the 218, you don't have to give away the farm. So we were negotiating, trying to get as much as we could, but understanding we could only get so much. Um, and we did that for a number of years until 
there were some midterms, uh, I guess, in 2014, where Republicans took the Senate. So then you had uh, you had a, a better opportunity to negotiate. You had you know the House, the Senate, but you still needed that last piece in the White House. So it was hard to get exactly what you wanted, but but it did improve the situation. And then shortly thereafter, my boss was elected to majority whip, so we got an up close view of what it's like to actually do this process. Um, and we did it a little bit with President Obama. Uh, the particular piece of legislation that we worked on, pretty hand in hand in glove with the White House, uh, was TPA, which was Trans Pacific Authority, so a fast track procedure for implementing trade deals. Um, the White House kind of said, you know, we'll give you whatever we can in support, but um, it's kind of up to you to find the votes. We found the votes where we could. It was a priority for Republicans. It was a priority for Democrats. So we, we worked on that. A lot of phone calls, a lot of members coming into the office, uh, a lot of meetings on the floor, a lot of votes. You know, where we're pulling numbers aside, trying to figure out where the support is, where the problems are. So that was the first time we worked uh, on a big piece of legislation with, uh, with the administration. And of course, all that changes in 2016 uh, with the election of the current administration, because now you have Republicans, so one party controlling all three keys, the House, the Senate, the White House. And that process got, got very close, very fast. The first bill that we worked on out of the gate was health care. So we had HHS secretary coming on the Hill. We had you know OPM secretary on the Hill. Uh, you know, the president was making phone calls. House members were diligently whipping members, either phone calls flying around, you know, draft bills flying around, amendments, um, members themselves were trying to figure out what was going on. So, I mean, it was, it was very hectic, you know, all the while we're making promises, members are, are seeing what they can do, you know, they're getting phone calls from their constituents, you know, businesses in the district are calling, you know, I've got so-and-so employees, I can't take this hit, or I got to take this hit, we expanded Medicaid. That we didn't expend Medicare. You were just before mentioning about the negotiating that goes on. And there's a scene early on where the president is trying to get and his chief of staff to get every last vote. And there's a lot of back and forth. And one tactic is that the president has a list of congressmen to call. And particularly on his list are some impressionable freshmen congressmen. And so one of the main characters, Michael O'Rourke, gets a call from the president trying to play up the power and the sway of the office to convince him to vote. And this freshman congressman holds his own on the phone and really stands up and says, if you don't cut this $5 million for a program that my constituents feel is a waste, I will not vote for your budget. Does it get down to the nitty gritty like that when the president makes a phone call to a more junior congressman that may be more impressionable? Yeah, when you're... When 218 is the magic number and you're sitting at 216, 217, you need one more vote. Um, yeah, you, you pull out all the stops. I mean, this is the, the meaning between passage or failure. You have the president, you have, you know, his dad, his mom, you know, uh, businesses in the district, you have friends, anybody you can think of that could help persuade that particular member to vote in your favor. Yeah, you, you make that push 100%. And, and members do. Uh, ha highlight certain pieces of the bill that they don't like. A lot of the times, it starts with macro concerns. So they say the non-discretionary number in a budget is just way too high, and I, I can't get around that. And then you, then you get them to agree to that, and then they say, well, you know, I can I can agree to the top line discretionary number, but you know, I think Department of Justice is way too high, you know, or, or HHS is too high, or I want to go and, and get some you know other political riders. 
into the bill. So they'll they'll go that deep, but typically it's not the first thing out of their mouth. It's kind of the top line, you know, numbers in the bill, some poison pill riders, if you will. But yeah, it's totally feasible that the president gets involved. Uh, a lot of times these are his priorities. I know the first part of the process is, is the House or the Senate, and that legislating is done through the legislative branch, but the president does have a role. He has to sign these bills, and so he wants things done. Um, and he's got some say in the process because he's got some skin in the game. Yeah. And so one more question about that is the role of the media. As you mentioned, you pull out all stops. We see in the book a chief of staff, very ruthless, very cunning, and willing to use and actually obsessed with the media and the public image and persona. So do you feel this is a good strategy because this character quickly recommends to the president to hold a press conference just on the eve of the vote once they think the whip count is one vote in their favor? It just rubbed me as odd that on such loose data, this negotiating, they get final word that they might have one vote margin and they go whole hog in front of the media saying, it's going to pass, we're ready, we're confident. Is that a common tactic? Is, does that sound to you like a blunder to go out to the media that soon just based on um, a flimsy whip count? You know, to me, it depends on the quality of your whip. There are different members of different abilities to determine who's where on a whip count. If you think you have a solid 218 and you have firm commitments from all those members, then yeah, you start doing the victory lap and see if you can, you know, get more members to vote for it than 218. If you can get to two, you know, 220, 230, 240 and show um, you know, that the conference is divided, that your party's united, uh, excuse me, united, and that, you know, this bill does have all the support it needs. And a lot of times if you drive, you know, big votes in the House, it puts pressure on the Senate and vice versa. You know, if something's very bipartisan or even very partisan, all the Republicans in the House or all the Democrats in the House voted for or against, that will you know, give some commentary to how the Senate or the House goes, depending on, you know, who moved first. So if you're, if you're sitting at 218, 219, and you want to put pressure on the members who've given the whip firm commitments, yeah, you go out and say, we got the votes and we're going to the floor. And then what you do is the president's, you know, in the Rose Garden telling you we got 219, whoever's, whatever chamber's considering that bill probably ought to get a move on and put it on the floor right then and there and, and, and get the thing passed. So typically uh, when you get 218 and it's a high priority piece of legislation, you take it to the floor as soon as you got 218. You don't give members the opportunity to stew and think and, you have the other side try to cut deals and rework, you know, particular, you know, provisions. So you can do it. Yeah, you can do it, but you better make sure your rip count is, is solid before you start announcing victory. I just have one more personal question I'm curious about. Of course, this genre, uh, the pop fiction uh, thriller genre has to have some pretty badass characters doing straight up badass things. Pretty neat that they write that into the persona of a freshman congressman from Minnesota. So there's a scene where during the ruthless tactics to get votes, someone is sent from a senator's office to intimidate this congressman in his office, and it turns into a confrontation when that, uh, that pundit there to twist his arm proverbially gets his arm twist literally by the congressman who's willing to use violence uh, after there's a few threats back and forth and there's a tape recorder and the congressman's going to go public. And so he actually, you know, physically and, and verbally, they, they go back and forth in the office. Is that out of the realm of possibility or are secret tape recorders in congressional offices, uh, physical altercations, even even small ones, is it possible? Or is that where we're just going into fiction here? 
I don't know about the. It is a good story. I'll tell you that. About the physical arm twisting, but there's okay. definitely political arm twisting. Uh, there's recording. There's leaking. Uh, there's uh, on Capitol Hill, the number one currency is information. So the way mm. you get it and deliver it is, you know, makes you useful. So yeah. This book obviously is titled "Term Limits." Plays heavily on this idea that there needs to be a change in. While there are term limits, term limits for the presidency, there's not term limits for Senate or in Congress. So what, where's the current debate? I mean, when you were on the Hill, uh, was there any talk about the change for term limits in, in, congress, in a congressional sense? Does it, did this ever come up or did people not even talk about this? No, so the idea um, is it's an evergreen issue. It's something that's been around since the founding of this country. Uh, members today do talk about it, but I would not say that the idea of term limits has you know, wide support on, on Capitol Hill. Republicans typically you know, support the idea more so than you know, the folks across the aisle, but even practically, but practically speaking, no Republican, I don't want to say no, but practically speaking, it's not a, a very popular issue. Uh, theoretically, sure, I think some members appreciate it and there are some conversations. Not to sound too cynical, it's hard for those who have seats in Congress to say, uh, I'm ready to, to artificially end you know, my ability to serve my constituents. Uh, I think that's a hard thing to get members of Congress to agree to. Right. Once you have this job, you want to, you want to keep it. And it, you know, maybe kind of a parallel to that. When it comes to chairmanships of, of particular committees, uh, so for example, I did a lot of work with the House Financial Services Committee. Uh, the House Republican rules say that there are term limits for having a chairmanship role. So you have no more than six years to serve in that role. So there are some you know, instances where term limits have been imposed on, on a very small scale. So there, there's a nod to the to the, the kind of value that that mechanism brings. Right. You know, I do have one other, um, and this is going to be a very personal question. So I'd understand if it's it's too much. But you know, a lot of this genre that we're reading and these books we're reviewing take place during times of violence. This particular book has assassination plots against multiple Congress people, including senators and even, spoiler alert, uh, for the midpoint of the book, but the Speaker of the House is assassinated. And so what is Washington like when there is a threat of violence against our government officials during a very tragic event on June 14th, 2017? In my hometown, Alexandria, Virginia, a number of Congress people, including a U.S. Capitol Police officer, and other aides were violently attacked by a shooter at a softball field here right outside our nation's capital. Well, I would say there was a tremendous show of, of faith and unity. Um, there was no one who wasn't willing to you know, send us card, prayer cards, mass cards, um, you know, stop by the office, see us, um, you know, stop at the hospital, see uh my boss. So there was a lot of unity, uh, a lot of prayers, uh, and a lot of support uh, for you know our way of life and the fact that you can have open debate. You can disagree, but um, you should never resort to, to violence, you know, over debate. So it was nice to see that in those times of, of violence, Americans do come together to protect, you know, their way of life. Thank you. Yeah, I remember that was a particularly hard time. So uh, thanks for talking to us about it.
We like to always end this podcast by asking you, the person we're interviewing, ask them what they're currently consuming are, uh, in media, in, in text, in, in movies. Give a little insight. I know this is a crazy time right now. We're probably all consuming a lot more than we were. But just So what are you currently watching and reading? Yeah, I was watch. I, did, I binge watched uh, Waco on Netflix uh, over the last year. Yeah, that was. I, I I couldn't believe that. I didn't know more about the about that tragic ending. Um, and it also has you know political implications you know around freedom of religion, freedom of speech. So I thought that was interesting. Um, I gotta admit though, a lot of my time is consumed by market news. I read a lot of Wall Street Journal, a lot of Bloomberg. You know, <laughs> trying to figure out. What the heck coronavirus is doing to the economy and, and, and the markets that you know reflect companies in it so that's what's consuming my time these days i don't know if you've seen the show house of cards or any political drama like yeah. west wing or i guess house of cards is on netflix so they were able to show you know be a little bit more mature in the content but would you say that that's an accurate depiction of what it's like to be in politics, I mean, besides like the blatant killing of, of certain people, I'm sure that happens as well. But, you know, would you say that that's pretty accurate about what goes on, like shows like that? A lot of it is uh, dramatization, but uh, there, there is a real drive for members to develop mechanisms to get consensus to pass legislation that's in the, that's in the, you know, uh, interest of your constituents. I mean, a lot of members vote based on what their constituents and businesses back home are telling them. Because ultimately, those are the the dollars and the votes that support you know the candidates you know come election day. So they they're they're tuned to that. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Happy to do it. Cool. Read some read some Vince Flynn. You'll like him. <laughs> the books are crazy, man. Absolutely in, crazy. In your free time and all your free time with your kids and yours. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Just a disclaimer. Guys, we're we just simply two fans offering a discussion and reviews of some of our favorite books and characters. This podcast is not officially affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster. But thank you to them for bringing us this wonderful world of Mitch Rapp.